Welcome to another edition of the College Faith Podcast, brought to you by Global Scholars. I'm your host, Stan Wallace. Christian students are called to be in the world but not of it. Yet doing so is much easier said than done, especially on campus. My guest today is John Stonestreet to discuss his and Brett Kunkel's recent book, A Practical Guide to Culture, Helping the Next Generation Navigate Today's World. John serves as president of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. He's a sought-after author and speaker on areas of faith and culture, theology, worldview, education, and apologetics. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, brother. Well, John, the title of your and Brett's recent book is A Practical Guide to Culture, Helping the Next Generation Navigate Today's World. How do you define culture? <laughs> yeah, that's culture is one of the most you know overused and underdefined words uh, ever. But the, the, the key point here is that we think and we live and we relate to each other in a context. We're not doing it in a vacuum. So even, for example, as uh, parents or pastors or youth pastors are concerned about certain beliefs or certain behaviors uh, that kids could get sucked into, it's really important to know uh, the cultural waters so that you know which beliefs and behaviors are attractive to them in the first place. So, you know, the, the analogy we use throughout the book is that culture is the water in which we swim. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's made up of ideas. It's made up of um, uh, institutions and frameworks and, you know, what we would call norms or traditions and, you know, moral beliefs and behaviors and, you know, things that make the news and things that don't make the news. But it's kind of like to hum- culture is to humans what water is to fish. And um, there's an old Chinese proverb that says, if you want to know what water is, don't ask the fish. Right. And that's because fish don't know they're wet. They don't have any sort of realization of their context. And, and that's one of the things we talk about when it comes to culture is understanding where culture is its most powerful. It's not where it's the loudest. It's not where things are debated. C.S. Lewis said that the most dangerous ideas in a society aren't the ones argued, but the ones that are assumed. And that's where culture's greatest power is, is in what it normalizes, not in what it fights over or, you know, it's not found in conflict. It's found in things that don't even get noticed. You offer five different responses then based on that understanding of culture. They can celebrate culture, create culture, confront culture, co-opt culture, or correct culture. And, and so I'd like to hear a little more about what the appropriate responses are for Christians out of those five options and how students can respond in those appropriate ways while in college? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And it, it's going to look different at different parts of our lives. And depending on, you know, the gravity kind of of the things that we are dealing with and, and you know, in our particular time and place. But part of that kind of goes to a fundamental idea that I think we need to get out right off the bat, which is culture is not bad. It's not bad that there's a culture or that there are cultures. Uh, and I say that because, you know, as we said earlier, culture is typically used as a synonym for all the things, uh, you know, that we don't like in the world, right? It's, it's, at least that's how it's used by Christians. Sure. As we talk about the culture in this universally disparaging way, culture exists, cultures exist, or it, because we are made to create them. 
In other words, it's not an accident. It's part of who God actually created us to be. We're different than the animals. Uh, it's part of what it means for us to bear his image, not just that we have value and we are like God and in and, and some you know really important ways. But we don't just consume from the world. We actually do stuff with the world. Uh, we're not just a, you know, the product of the, the environment around us. We create it. We make it. And uh, it's actually what God wanted us to do is part of the creation in which God looked at what he had made and said, it's very good that humans, um, you know, can actually make stuff and, and can actually make a world out of the world. And which is probably another helpful definition of culture is that, you know, it's the world we make out of the world. And so if we take that approach, then this whole idea or this understanding of culture, then the idea, for example, that we can run away from culture or hide from culture or avoid culture, we see just that that's not true. You know, culture is not just something that's out there. Culture is wherever people get together, right? You'll notice, you know, really quickly, for example, uh, students will notice when they go uh, to college that in their, not only is there a kind of a, uh, a college culture wherever they're at. And it changes, you know, whether you're at a Christian college and you go to like a Wheaton and then go to a Taylor, you'll see these cultural differences. Sure. Whether you go to different geographic regions, going to, going to college in Hawaii, I assume is quite different than Minnesota. <laughs> uh, but it's also within college, it, it, it's even, you even see distinctions within a dorm floor, right? Within a a little quad, depending on who they are, who, who the people are and what, what are the norms? What are the uh, no-nos? I mean, all of this stuff is part of culture. So if we take that approach right off the bat, then we realize, look, in the larger culture in which we live, there are times that we should celebrate. We should celebrate when in, injustices are addressed, when evils are punished, when goodness is rewarded, when somebody, you know, does something remarkable. I once uh, lived in Tennessee and one of the bad things about Tennessee are church billboards. I know they're not unique to Tennessee, but in Tennessee, they seem particularly heretical. There was one billboard in the town that I used to live in. It said, Jesus is the only good thing left in a bad world. And I just thought there's so much wrong with that. First of all, if that's, yeah. yeah. I mean, for example, if that's true, why would I ever come to your church? Right. (laughs) Because it's a bad place, you know? But that's not what the Bible teaches. Bible teaches that when God created the world, he said, it's good. He created us very good. He created us with the capacity to do good. So we can high five uh, culture when it does things that are good and true and beautiful. So that's what we you know celebrate. Sure. So on that, I'd like to hear, hear some examples. How can students do that? How can they celebrate that which is good in the university world? How can they value that? Well, I, I think it's um, a, a couple things. Number one is, is you have to define what is good. So one of the things that we have to resist are bad definitions of what is good and what is bad. Scripture says, woe to those who call right, wrong and wrong, right. And then it turns around and applies that not only to individuals, but entire communities and cultures. So, for example, we have... Um, have seen in history that certain things were thought to be right that actually weren't just not right. They were actually harmful and devastating. So that begins for all of us living in a fallen world with people who aren't under the same authority structure that we are by recognizing and and having a clear definition of what is true and what is good. And then when we do have that, then to recognize it wherever we find it. So let's take curriculum, for example. There's a uh, wonderful phrase, which is 
something that should inform our learning, which is all truth is God's truth. In other words, if something is true and you discover it, whether it's in sociology, human psychology, uh, biology, anthropology, any of the ologies, right? If something is true, the ultimate source is that it came from God and we should celebrate truth. Another one is, you know, something that we know to be good. And this is, by the way, one of the things that set Christians apart throughout history is the celebration of every single life is inherently valuable with, with dignity and purpose. In, in other words, people don't acquire dignity. They don't acquire value. It, it, it comes with their humanness because they're made in the image likeness of God. That's a distinctly Christian idea. And Christians have long in cultural context that failed to recognize human dignity, uh, have celebrated the dignity and value of people that often get left out. For Christians today, I think, for example, you'll, you'll have classes, Christians will have classes in which entire po- groups of the population, we pretend like they don't exist. Like we pretend that people who thought they were born in the wrong body at birth and changed their mind and realize, oh, no, they actually were born in the right body and their body is good. We pretend those people don't exist on many college campuses. So celebrating the, the beauty of those stories. Um, Women who regret their abortion. We pretend like those people don't actually exist. They do exist. People who do not um, use a, an attraction, a sexual attraction to justify behavior. Those people, again, aren't supposed to exist, especially on a college campus. They do exist. And to celebrate the, their inherent dignity in and of themselves, I think is remarkable and important. And we could look at some other examples, too. Um, We also celebrate kind of kindness and goodness. We celebrate redemption. You know, you can find you can see redemption in a story and celebrate it because it's speaking to the larger realities of redemption. And think of how powerful that is, because, you know, if Darwin is right, we live in a cultural context. We live in 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 a human context in which grace is weakness, you know. Uh, failure is permanent. Um, the strong survive. And when you see things that go against self-interest of self-survival or interest of propagation of species, and we intuitively recognize that it's that it's beautiful. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, those are things I think we can celebrate. And you quote somebody in the book that's getting at something related to this. I'd like you to say more about it. You quote Gregory Thornbury. When he says Christian is the greatest of all possible nouns and, and the lamest of all possible adjectives, it's meant to describe a person, not a thing. And say more about what he and you mean by that and how that relates to this idea. The quote is, is remarkable, and there's been various versions of it prior to his, but I like the way he had put it. Um, you know, essentially, um, we have in our kind of weaker understandings of culture have kind of thought of culture as a collection of stuff. And if it's a collection of stuff, then we have to draw this line and put it in the good category and the bad category or the Christian category and the worldly category, right? So if something comes from a source that's not particularly Christian, we want to put it in the worldly category. But that, you know, that line going back to what we said, all truth is God's truth is something to say that ultimately you might have found truth, uh, you know, from a secular biologist in a particular area, but it's there. He found it, not because he put it there, but because God did. 
Now, now multiply that across every area of life in human existence and human relationships. And suddenly you realize there's a whole lot of stuff out there that can't so swiftly be put into the Christian and non-Christian category. And that's when we tend to use adjectives like Christian songs, Christian movies. Like, you know, when I was growing up, um, you know, it was really simple. <laughs> Christian music was good and rock music was bad. <laughs> and then somebody came up with Christian rock music, man. It was confusing. So is that good or bad? That's How right. do we know? Right. <laughs> and then, you know, obviously the same thing about movies and going to theaters and all kinds of different behaviors. But that's that's drawing the li- line through a whole bunch of stuff in the culture as if Christian refers to things, to artifacts. Right. Christian re- is a pronoun, actually. It actually refers to people. Um, it refers to individuals. And by the way, it reflects the deeper story of Christianity as you get in the scripture, uh, that when God created us as human, um, he said it was very good. And that humanness was then broken in, in various ways because of sin. And Christ came to put all those pieces back together. Here's how I like to say it. We're not saved from our humanness. We're saved to it. That's good. So really, a Christian is another way of saying restored human. Mm-hmm. And you you are a restored human, by the way, because you follow Jesus and accept his forgiveness on the cross for your you know, offense against a holy, perfect God, right? And so I'm, I'm not, I'm not downplaying that, re, that, that um, uh, substitutionary atonement or anything like that. But I'm just saying that the end result of salvation itself is to be a restored human. So a Christian has to refer to a person uh, first and foremost. And so I hear you saying then to celebrate what is good is not the same as celebrating what is quote unquote Christian, but cel- celebrating all that is good, true, and beautiful, no matter where it is found, who speaks it, who believes it, being part of the the celebration of God's creation in all its diversity. Is that right? That, that is. And that also means, you know, kind of refusing to celebrate things, even if they are Christian. Mm, okay. And they don't meet those standards of, of truth, goodness, and beauty. Right. Um, you know, we, we, we let, for example, sometimes Christian writers get off the hook with being kind of bad writers. Right. We, uh, you know, we let Christian institutions sometimes adopt practices that end up being harmful because they're a Christian. We want to too much good is being done. We want to turn the other way. Right. And, I, and I know a lot of younger people are, have seen that up close and personal, and it's a source of great frustration and disillusionment for them. And right. I mean, rightly so. So talk about the flip side a little bit as you were starting to a minute ago. How can students challenge and re- redeem that which is harmful, that which came from the fall? Yeah, well, you know, th- th- unfortunately, that sort of language of engaging culture, um, celebrating culture, you know, encouraging creativity uh, has been used as, as an excuse to um, downplay the moral standards that God clearly communicates for his people mm-hmm. and actually for his creation. You know, we, we do it in the name of kind of being relevant. You know, we, we, we've had, we've seen that kind of up close and personal as well. I think over the last several months during the pandemic and during then the riots in which there was a, a cause that emerged again in our society, you know, kind of rooted back to one of our kind of like, you know, what many people have called our nation's original sin, racism, that whole thing exploded again. And uh, churches that hadn't talked about it at all, ever, uh, suddenly felt obliged to jump on the bandwagon and talk about it. But but it's the same churches that maybe in the same pastors that haven't said a word about other injustices like abortion or 
you know, doctor assisted suicide or something like that in their states. That highly selective thing reveals that what you're doing now is not really celebrating what's good and confronting what's not. What you're doing is trying to chase cultural relevance. Mm. And cultural relevance is a notoriously fickle thing to chase uh, because what makes you relevant in this time and place will make you irrelevant in another time and place and, and won't ground you into who people really are. I mean, look, the thing we have to realize is that the world is a, a particular way because it's a created place. We, we are certain kind of creatures because we are created and culture will either align with that, which is true and real and good and created, or it will actually conflict with it. So chasing cultural relevance means you'll be on the wrong side of reality, uh, you know, pretty easily. And I think we have seen that we have to have the ability. This is sometimes the most important cultural work that Christians have done is being willing to stand in the middle of a mess and say, no, if, if someone is not okay, the cruelest thing you can tell them is that they are. And uh, when it comes to our desire to be relevant, our desire to not be offensive, um, maybe, you know, running away from what we perceive to be maybe the harsher parts of our Christian upbringing or something like that, it's far too common for Christians then to decide that they're going to take a moral stand only on those things that the culture has already decided is okay. And this, all of this to us, and we, we talk about this in the book, means that realizing what culture is is crucial because as a Christian, we realize that it's very real. It really shapes our experience as human beings in this time and place, but it's a moment in a larger story. And that's a, that, that's a dramatic difference. I mean, if you could think, for example, if all you saw Let's say if you watch the Lord of the Rings movies and you got all the way up to the end of movie one, you know, where, you know, Gandalf falls off the bridge after fighting, you know, right. the demon looking thing. And you think, well, man, he was my favorite character. I'm never watching this stuff again. And you judge the whole series by that moment. Mm -hmm. uh, the only way to understand that moment is from the story. And that's why I think God is so kind to give us his word, which takes us all the way from creation to the new creation from the entire grand meta story of the world. Because that gives us the framework to understand our moment. Right. Chasing cultural relevance is when we stand in the moment and then try to make sense of the story. The only thing we can do is stand in the story if we're to make sense of our moment. And that ties into the broader concept you mentioned a minute ago about being fully human and yeah. what that is and how that's not conditioned by a lot of the cultural ideas we have today, or it's not, not consistent yeah. with those ideas we have today. Uh, you write in the book related to the fall, quote, long ago, Western culture lost what it means to be human. Hmm. And then you say, take, for instance, education. I'd like to have you say a little <laughs> more about how yeah. that view of what we are as humans that came about as a result of the fall relates to our view of education. Oh, uh, listen, I, so I'm so glad you asked this. This is one of my favorite things to talk about. So I'll try to be brief, but I'll just say that one of the most helpful frameworks I've ever come across in understanding culture and what we, you know, what, what kind of the world we live in comes from T.S. Eliot. Now, this is not a direct quote. I'm, I'm pulling this out of something he wrote in an article called The Aims of Education. But Eliot there says, essentially, before you know what you should do or what you should do with something, you need to know what that something is for. So imagine, you know, you came across a laptop and you've never seen a laptop before and you're like, ooh, what can this do? 
it opens and closes. I could use it as a puppet, you know, or it's smooth like a MacBook Air. I could skip it across the lake like a rock. Now, you can do either of those things with a laptop, but it will actually dramatically underutilize the laptop or kill it, right? And that's because that's not what the laptop is for. The fundamental flaw in, in modern education in so many different contexts right now is that we do education. In fact, the entire educational system is based on helping kids do stuff, right? The moment that they're, you know, they hit 11th grade in high school, we start saying, well, what do you want to do when you grow up? What do you want to do when you grow up? You know, same thing in college. What do you want to do? Uh, as if we're human doers. And um, the problem with that is you don't know what you should do. It's kind, of, it's kind of like the conversation the church has had with teenagers for years around, you know, sex education. We're like, you know, don't have sex. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this without telling them kind of what their sexuality is and what it's for. This is the fundamental flaw of education. Elliot goes on to say, whatever your philosophy is of education, it implies a philosophy of, of man. If you don't know what it means to be human, you can't know what it means to educate. And so right now, I think one of the biggest challenges for students is that there's this exchange that's built into modern education, right? Where you have money, they have a degree, you pay them money, they set out a set of hoops, you jump through the hoops and poof, you're an educated person as if education is something you could get. And it's just not true. And the mark of an educated person classically has always been someone who's always learning. You never get an ed That's the thing about an education. You never get it, right? You're always after it. Steve Garber uh, has a remarkable book called The Fabric of Faithfulness. And then he quotes a Duke University student. He goes, you know, he says, we've got no idea of what it is that somebody wants for graduation. This so-called curriculum is a set of hoops somebody says students ought to jump through before graduation. And he, here's how he lands it. It's, a, it's an amazing quote. He says, no one seems to have asked, how do people become good people? In other words, education is jumping through hoops, but what does it mean to be a good person? What are we for? And along those lines, you cite C.S. Lewis's article, Men Without Chests, in his The Abolition of Man. Yeah. And, and Lewis there critiques education that simply fills the head with knowledge and the belly with passions, but fails to cultivate the chest. Right. And why would you fail to cultivate the chest? The chest, of course, in Lewis's language is the moral will. So he's, he's flexing off of Aristotle. He mm -hmm. said that the head is the seat of the reason and the belly is the seat of the passion. And Aristotle said, well, it's easy. The head has to govern the belly. And Lewis is like, it ain't that easy because in a real fight between head and belly, belly always wins. So there's something else that we have, which is the moral will, the moral imagination. But the moral imagination is fundamentally tied to purpose. In other words, it has to be governed by vision, right? Not just by repetition, not just by habit, which is what, you know, Aristotle talked about. It has to be done by vision. What are we for? What's all this about? So that I have a higher perspective to bring to the head and to the belly, mm -hmm. to, to, to the reason and, and, and to, the, to, to the appetite. I've got to have something else. I, you know, you, you see that. By the way, what I love about men without chest, well, I, I love this about Lewis is that, you know, if you read some of his essays and it's a little complicated, you can always go to Narnia. Uh, because he builds all this stuff into Narnia. Like right. if you read Mere Christianity and you feel like you didn't quite get it, go read Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That's Mere <laughs> Christianity in a story. Well, Men Without Chest is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Sure. And it's Eustace. Eustace is the boy without a chest. Just read the first four or five chapters and you'll see what I'm talking about. The kind of kid Eustace is, the kind of kid Eustace becomes, and what it takes to get him there. 
And um, that's what Lewis is, is, is getting at. And that's what so much of education misses. How do you know what an education is if, if you don't have a clear sense of who you're educating? You don't have a clear sense of what an education would be. Let, 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 let's say somebody actually got an education. How would we know? How would we know? It wouldn't be because they had a piece of paper. It wouldn't be because they paid money. What would prove to us that this is an educated person? We, most schools operate entire majors and programs without, without any sort of understanding of what the end result is. It, it, it would be like if I said, hey, I'm going to buy a bunch of computer parts because I'm going to start a computer company. He's like, well, great. What kind of computers are you going to build? And I'd be like, I don't know. Like, well, what, what, what do you, where's your blueprint? Don't have one. What's a good computer? Don't know. I'm just going to put the parts together and see how that goes. I mean, think of how many um, college degrees are like that. Think of how many Christian colleges are like that. Oh, yeah. You know, they throw in a discipleship program and right. a chapel and some sports and, you know, parents weekend and, you know, maybe some professors, <laughs> uh, hopefully, and, and, and a cafeteria. It's like, hmm, let's see what happens at the end of this without a vision and intentionality. So that, that's really what's missing. And it's directly connected to this deeper problem in Western culture in which we are making all kinds of decisions about all kinds of things. I just interviewed for our podcast, uh, Professor uh, Carter Sneed from Notre Dame, uh, who has just written the most remarkable book on uh, bioethics. Uh, Yuval Levin calls him, calls this book the most important book on social ethics written this century. Now, I know it's only 2020, but it's still two decades. I mean, that's, that's kind of a win. Right. And his point is exactly that. We talk about the human person as if we're not bodies, mm-hmm. right? As if, you know, what I feel, what I, what I want somehow changes reality as it is. And, and so that, that, that anthropological crisis, Peter Berger, the sociologist said, modern man has a permanent identity crisis. If we don't know who we are, it's going to be impossible to figure out questions of morality, much less kind of build towards any sort of future, whether in education or anything else. And again, Eustace is such a great paradigm of this. (laughs) Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. That's the greatest opening line. Yeah, that's the greatest opening line of any book right there. (laughs) And that's what students will experience often, a very dehumanizing education. And so how can students fight against that? How can they become men and women with chests who are full bodied, who are fully incarnate? Well, look, I think every educator should read. I know we've already recommended like seven books already, but every educator should read uh, Steve Garber's book, The Fabric of Faithfulness, because Steve answers this question and he answers it in a very powerful way. And he'll be on the show here shortly, actually. Well, good. Tell him I said hello. He's, he's such a wonderful guy. Um, so, so, so Steve and the Fabric of Faithfulness has suggested that, and it was interesting because it comes out of his experience running the American Studies program in D.C., in which he had all these really great Christian kids that were at college. And the ones, sometimes the ones who had all the answers and knew the most did the worst. And, and he was surprised by the ones that made it and the ones that didn't, right? I talked to uh, my neighbor for years was a guy who was had three deployments in Iraq. And he said the same thing about his soldiers. He's like, you know, the ones you think are going to make it sometimes don't in terms of mental stability and stuff. So it, it's kind of the trend. What's the secret sauce? So instead of looking at what went wrong, he looked at what went right. What are these kind of, what are the characteristics that this group that really made it? You know, maybe it wasn't easy. Maybe they stumbled, but 
you know, you could just see they, they you know, they emerged as, as people who love the right things and, and so on. And he points to three things. The first thing is uh, you got to have a big enough worldview. I love that phrase big enough because the problem with, with many uh, Christian worldview classes or training programs is that they're not preparing uh, students for the, the real challenges of life. Right. I mean, you kind of look and say, I don't know how old you understand. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm 45. So let's say when I was, you know, 30 years ago, right. 30 years ago, my mom sits me down and says, okay, my dad, and they're like, Hey, I'm going to tell you everything that you're going to face in your life. And here's the decisions you should make in each, each and every case. I mean, what a, what a ridiculous thing. They would have had no idea about, po- you know, really where postmodernism was going. Sure. They would have had no idea about ISIS 9-11, about COVID, about, you know, the Trump years. They would have no idea about Miley Cyrus. You know, <laughs> I mean, how, how would they be able to navigate all this? This is what Garber means by a big enough worldview. Because what tends to happen if a kid's worldview is not big enough, if his Christianity isn't as big as the world, but it's only as big as the church or it's only as big as... You know the um, the moral um, the moral concerns of a particular group of people. If they're told, I'll give you a classic example. If they're told from the moment that they're born that evolution is stupid, that's not a big enough worldview. Even if creation is the right way to see the world, what I mean is, is you turn around and meet some really smart evolutionist, right? Mm-hmm. And and in other words, it's one thing to think Hinduism is wrong. It's another thing if your roommate's a Hindu. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's one thing to think marriage is between a man and a woman. It's another thing to, to believe that in a context where to say that out loud, you're thought to be the same as Hitler. Right. That's what we mean by a big enough worldview, one that takes seriously the brokenness of the world. Uh, the second thing that Garber says is, is that he, they need to be part of a community that embody that worldview. So in other words, not just having that worldview in, in person and having a church community, but having a connection with a church community that not only believes, but lives towards that same sort of purpose. So they, they're, they're seeing and embodied. So he talks about worldview. He talks about community and connects them. And then the third thing he talks about is mentoring, uh, that you have a mentor that, uh, that also orients his life around, uh, you know, that vision or something close. In other words, you, 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 uh, for, for kids, they need a community and they need important voices in their life. And what happens when you go to college? Too often, kids go to college and they get isolated. It, it, it's death. And, and by the way, too often, sometimes they'll go to college and they're not isolated, but their worldview has been so small. They've, they've never been taught how to think about the image of God. So then they hear something like, you know, critical theory and they can't make the connections. They can't navigate critical theory because they don't have a framework of what it means to be human. Their faith has been, here's how to behave or Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Not what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. So it's not a big enough worldview for the questions that the, the culture is asking. We will return to our discussion in just a moment, but first a word from our sponsor. Do you have a child, relative, or friend preparing to be or currently a university student? What they need most are Christian professors who can help them learn to love God with their hearts and minds during these impressionable years. Global Scholars equips Christian professors to do just this. Please visit www.global-scholars.org to learn more and see how you can be a part of equipping Christian professors to show Christ's love to students on a campus near you and worldwide. And now back to the show. 
in the book, you actually say it's so insightful. You say, quote, teach your kids to ask two questions over and over again. One, what do you mean by that? And two, (laughs) how do you know that's true? That is so helpful. Well, what do you mean by that has to do with definitions. So the battle, the battle for hearts and minds is oftentimes the battle over the definition of words. And I tell you, in academia, definitions get smuggled in. Literally, uh, Stan, just last week, I had a conversation uh, with a, a, a couple whose daughter is in a university. I won't name who it is or anything like that, but was given uh, a social ethics class, was given some topics to write about and a set of frames through which to see those topics, right? So she could choose different issues having to do with international relations, U.S. and China, or, you know, uh, the 2020 election or something like that. And then she has to see them through a set of lenses, feminism, you know, women's right, critical theory, you know, whatever. Right. Then, then, ready, is given a set of sources, a proof set of sources. That's it. They couldn't go to any other sources. Wow. So what she did was, she used all the sources that she was required to and then used more. And she was marked down. Now, I, you've been on a college campus. I've taught you know, college students. I'm like, if a kid did more than I asked them to do, that's, that's you know, getting freshmen out of the bed in the morning is a great accomplishment. Like, this is fantastic. Right. But you just need to understand that that's why that definition is. Because, look, you, you use words like woman on a college campus, and it is loaded with meaning. And so that question, what do you mean by that is really important. You use questions like you use words like religion or or secularism or or gender or even biological sex. You know, the dominant assumption about biological sex is that it is assigned at birth as if the doctor sees a baby and goes, hmm, let's flip a coin. What should it be this time? As if there aren't, you know, body parts there that indicate, you know, th- this is a really important thing right here. Uh that, that, that this definition of words. And then the point about true, how do you know that's true? The reason I really love that question is it, we live in a culture in which assertions get passed off as arguments. In other words, well, I think that, well, that's good. I mean, I think I don't need to lose weight, but reality is still what reality is. You know, what I think isn't necessarily lining up with that. So we ask the question, well, how do you know that's true? It helps students discern between assertions and assumptions or assertions and arguments. That's so helpful. I appreciate you unpacking that a little bit. Another guest I've had on has talked about another aspect of going to college and really embracing those years and flourishing uh, in terms of the importance of finding one's calling. And along those lines, you write, quote, the kind of work God usually calls you to is the kind of work, A, that you need most to do, and B, that the world most needs to be done. So what are the practical ways students can discover that during their college years? Yeah, that's such a great question. And I have to credit that. And I do cite it in the book. It belongs yeah. to uh, Frederick Buechner, uh, his great line, that the place God calls you to is a place where your deep passion and the world's deep hunger meet. So here's, here's the theological framework. Uh, first of all, in terms of your deep passion or your giftedness is the parable of the talents. It's the idea of the creation narrative where Adam and Eve aren't just supposed to live and eat. They're supposed to steward. They're supposed to care for what they've been given. And then, of course, you have this remarkable parable that Jesus tells of the talents. This part of the parable is the kingdom in which the servant is judged, not because he loses anything, but because he didn't use what, what he had been given. And this is connected to the understanding of how judgment's going to happen at the end of time and what God expects of us and so on. 
And then the part where it's like the world needs most to have done is something that I think is profound and overlooked often, which is in Acts 17, when Paul finds himself in Athens, so he's not dealing with a Jewish audience anymore. He starts talking about Jesus. They don't have any clue what he's talking about, but they invite him to share more. And so he backs up to an argument about God. And in it, he uh, is talking to Epicureans and Stoics, both of whom have a um, very unique and different vision of how the gods related to time and place. And in the middle of this, here's what he says, that the God who made everything does not, you know, was not made by human hands. He's not dependent on human hands, but uh, he determines the exact times people live in the boundaries of their dwelling place. In other words, you live in this time and place by design. A lot of times we talk about calling by like, you know, hey, do what you love and find somebody to pay you for it. The Bible introduces this other category of you live in a broken culture that's somewhere on the scope, uh, the timeline of redemptive history. And that time you live in is as much of a calling as the gifts or the abilities or the resources that he's given. And so the secret is to find that intersection. Uh, the intersection is Beekner said between your deep passion and the world's deep hunger. I think to, to unlock the, your deep passion part, I love this question. Uh, when do you feel most like you? What can you not not do? I have a daughter. I walked up the other night. She's 13 years old. This is not the first time this has happened. It is a school night. Okay. It is a school night. She is getting up the next morning early and it is 1130 and she is still awake. And she looks panicked. And I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, I was painting. When she paints, I mean, the house could burn down around her and she would not notice. Uh, it is when she feels most like her. Something comes a lot. For me, it's teaching. I can't not teach. I uh, ask my wife. It drives her crazy. And it's interesting because in a crowd, I'm an introvert. Uh, that This is something I can't not do. That's so how I'm wired too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you know it because you, yeah. you lose track of the time. You feel most like you. You can't not do it. Right. You know, as a kid, I thought I wanted to be a basketball coach. And then I had a chance to coach and I didn't really like it. And then I realized, remembered when I was coaching, I was doing it at a little camp where I was teaching skills. In other words, I didn't really love coaching. I love teaching. Right. And that is uh, th- these are the distinctions that you need uh, experience. You need to be intentionally watching yourself. You need to be having people who know you better than you watch you. Ask mom and dad, hey, when did I ever lose track of time? When when did I ever, when did you see, like, listen, I, as a dad and, and Stan, I think you have kids too, right? I do. I have, I have four kids and there are these moments when they get lost in their own world and you just watch them with wonder because you know mm-hmm. something magical is happening, something divine. Um, so that's the other, that, that's one thing the, to, to really wrestle with the um, what the world needs most to have done. The question I like to ask is what breaks you, your heart? Uh, I don't think we have to fight everything, but there are some things that we just, you know, we look and we go, that can't live and that, that can't go. That can't stand. Right. There's some place we go, look, I'm not going to stand. You know, maybe maybe it's wrong because we're not well morally formed that we don't stand everywhere. But there's some things that you just you just. No, that that's not going to go. Maybe it's bullying. You just, you know, or or a lie. I, I cannot tolerate when someone doesn't tell the truth or when someone's fake or when something is, is shoddily constructed. You know, you can kind of think about all these things that you just can't tolerate. And so uh, I think the intersection is right there. Uh, what can you not not do? And what breaks your heart? And you, you find that intersection. And I think it points to the sort of life God wants you to have. So what are the two or three other 
important concepts in this book that you'd want to make sure high school students understand as they prepare for college and, and their parents as well as they're helping them get ready? That's a good question. One of the things we talk about is the idea of under cultural undercurrents, and we identify some in the book, but we all know about the waves, right? We all know when we go to the beach and we're not looking and a wave comes and smacks us from behind. We love those YouTube videos. But think about the um, the times, you know, I've done this as a dad already. You probably have too, where you, you know, you're, you take your kids to the beach and you set up your towel and you see, you see them run into the water and then you look down and then you look up and they're not there. And right. You have an aneurysm and it's because they just drifted, but they right. didn't know it. You didn't know it. No wave hit them. It was an undercurrent. Mm-hmm. And you need to understand that a lot of times under the surface of the chaos there are some really powerful undercurrents that are dramatically changing how we think about ourselves, how we think about truth. Uh, for example, one of the problems with cell phones is that there's a lot of pornography that's easily accessible. Another problem with cell phones is that we would rather engage through mediated forms than actually have real conversations and real relationships. See, the second one's an undercurrent. You, you, fi- you, you, you find yourself drifting right? So that you don't even realize it. And you start to see people as machines and you're like, well, Siri gives me everything that I want. Why doesn't my wife? And these drifts sort of happen without us actually knowing it. So pay attention to the undercurrents. We list four in the book. I would have listed four or five more if I could do it again, uh, at least one or two more. And I, I, I would say that, that that's one thing. The other thing is this idea of virtue formation, that sort of people you want to be I give it a self-diagnostic in there that tries to get to the heart of who we are as human beings. And, and how do we know? How do we know whether we're drifting? How do we know whether culture is winning in our hearts and minds? And, and, and it has to do with our loves, uh, those things that we habitually choose intimacy with. It has to do with our longings. These are our imaginations. Your loves shape you. We're love-shaped people. That's what St. Augustine taught us. Your longings aim you. Nobody wakes up and goes, you know, I want to, you know, be a sex addict and cheat on my wife. What it is, is their longings. It's, you know, you're, you're, you're lying in bed at night. No one's around and you start thinking to yourself, if only, if only. And, and, and that's powerful because human imagination is the most powerful thing on the planet. We, we look, we, we looked at sand and eventually came up with an iPhone. I mean, it's amazing what humans can imagine. But it's powerful. It'll take you in good directions and bad directions. So longings and our loves. We also talk about loyalties. In the American context, you're not going to have time and money for everything. So what you choose to be loyal to is going to be huge. Uh, Your labors. How hard do you work at what? Andy Stanley wrote a book years ago called Choosing to Cheat. We choose to cheat something because we don't have enough time and don't have enough money. So what 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 gets your labors? What doesn't? And then and then finally, um, the the question of liturgies. That's the one of the ways that culture expresses its power over us. How it does so much of the unseen is it just puts us in rhythms. We don't think about them. We just do them. I uh, drive into work now. I, I don't think about turning into Starbucks. It just happens to me. Right? Right. I, right. I'm innocent. But in terms of how much we're looking at screens instead of looking in our our, our family's eyes, uh, sure. in terms of how much debt we go into, in terms of what we choose, you know, to stand for or not stand for, a lot of that just has to do with the liturgy, just rhythms, and uh, I think it's important. We'll know that, by the way. I don't know, you know, wherever when this will actually, you know, air, but when we're recording it, it's just a week or so out from Thanksgiving. 
And, you know, this is what we do, right? We spend Thursday giving thanks and then we trample security guards for flat screen TVs Friday morning, you know, and that's a liturgy. No one says, hey, it's a good idea for us to completely dehumanize this poor minimum wage worker so that I can get a good deal on a TV. Right. No one would argue for that. It's just it's, it's the rhythm. Mm-hmm. Jamie Smith has got a great book on liturgies. You are what you love. I'll tell you, because I cite it in the book. You are what you love. It's a, Well, that's one of the ones he has. Desiring the Kingdom is another one. Yeah. Desiring the Kingdom is specifically written for education, mm-hmm. uh, as well as the follow-up, Imagining the Kingdom. But yeah, a lot of these ideas, by the way, are coming from, from Jamie. Well, I asked that question related specifically to high school students. Is there something you might add for the college students who are listening? Well, I think those five L's, I think, are just really helpful. Uh, I just think because it's hard to see yourself. And the time it takes to intentionally do a self-audit is uh, tough. And what I always tell people with those five L's is, look, use them. uh, Get yourself before God in a quiet space. Answer them as honestly as you can. Then ask your somebody who knows you better than you know yourself, a friend, sibling, mom and dad. Because if you have someone that cares about what you love and will, is willing to tell you, hey, I see, you, I see your heart going in this direction, that's going to be a great asset. That's a gift from God. Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Unfortunately, um, too often we don't want a, um, a friend to wound us. We want a friend to coddle us or pat us on the head. Sure. And uh, so that, that, that's really important. And then also just, you know, those three things, and especially the community and the, uh, the mentor piece that Garber brings up, especially important in college. Well, John, as we draw this conversation to a close, is there anything else you'd want to make sure our listeners know? Uh, we, we do a, a, a nationwide discipleship program called the Colson Fellows. Uh, Chuck Colson started it years ago, and we have uh, started to have a lot more millennial uh, students that are in this. And just uh, recently in our Colorado Springs chapter, there were two millennial and the question came up about um, socialism. And um, look, you know, given the track record of socialism in so many countries throughout the world, why are young people drawn to it? And they were wrestling and talking through that. Uh, the millennials said, well, here's our opinion. And they gave two thoughts. And I thought they were really, really profound. And what and it can apply to so many other areas. And this is especially not for the college students, but for those who care about college students and high school students, the pastors and the teachers. The first thing they said was, our earliest historical memory is not the fall of the Berlin Wall. It is the 2008 financial collapse. And that story, the capitalists were the bad guys. Right. We don't have the history. Now, you got to think that civic education is not a strong suit in the American experience. The good guys and bad guys of history are not always told with very with a whole lot of clarity. Mm-hmm. They did not have the framework to judge that. Uh, Rod Dreher in his new book, Live Not By Lies, talks about being in a coffee shop in Russia and the waitress did not know what a gulag was. Wow. So the lack of historical memory is devastating. The other thing that they said Uh, The other millennial in our group put it this way, said, well, the other thing is, look, the church never talks about any of this. Mm. We've never heard the church mention the difference between a socialist view of a human person and a view that, you know, comes out of a market system. I mean, you know, never heard any of that. It it doesn't even address the worldview implications of it. It doesn't even address it at all. So the only information we get on this, it comes from our schools. 
and they only teach one side of it. And I think that's absolutely critical to understand that, um, you know, I, I once was doing a seminar at a Christian school in the middle of nowhere, and I was using illustrations from popular culture. And the, the pastor got really mad and shut us down and said, I can't believe you would talk about that sinful stuff in here. And I thought, if we don't talk about it in here, they're going to talk about it out there. Right. And I, I mean, look, that, that was about Seinfeld back then, whenever that was 20 <laughs> years ago. I mean, look, now we're talking about all kinds of issues that reach to the core. I think about this all the time with young couples who are getting married. What premarital counseling involves talking about artificial reproductive technologies and what crosses the line and what doesn't. Hmm. You, you know where all this comes back to? T.S. Eliot, who said, before you know what you should do, you have to know what something is for. Right. Before you know what to do with something, you have to know what something is for. And um, the church has that. That's what's so crazy. We have the four on everything. You know, what did God create us for? What's the creation for? What are men for? What are women for? What's the family for? What's the government for? What's the church for? We've got all the fours, but uh, we're not building that up in our catechism. So that's my, that's my last thought for the pastors and teachers and so on. That is so helpful. So where can people go to get more information? What books, websites, other resources would you suggest? Sure. I appreciate you asking. So the book that you've been referencing is a practical guide to culture that's written for pastors, teachers, grand. We've had a bunch of grandparents. Grandparents have found that book really helpful, mainly because they still want to be involved in their grandkids' life, but there's so much dividing them right now. I sum it up with, you know, technology, sex, and Trump are dividing the generations. So uh, they found that book really helpful. We also have a student version of that book called A Student's Guide to Culture. We took a lot of that same information and wrote it at a a really level of a high school sophomore. So if you've got a student like that in your life, uh, this could be a great Christmas gift. Every single day, uh, the Colson Center, I'm the president of the Colson Center. We do a commentary called Breakpoint. This is something that Chuck Colson started years ago as a radio uh, uh, broadcast. But you can find it on email. You come to our website, sign up for it. We'll email it to you every day. Uh, you can also, if you're a podcast person, uh, you look up the Breakpoint podcast anywhere you get your podcast. And it's a daily dose. We call it kind of a daily dose of sanity on the culture. I love when I hear, and I hear this uh, you know, almost all the time. Back when I was traveling and speaking before COVID, uh, parents would come up to me and say, you know, you're part of our family. This is what we talk about around the dinner table. We print out Breakpoint. We talk about it. it gives us a good conversation, which I think is just yeah, what a cool. It's so good. Uh, yeah, a lot of teachers, especially in uh, high school, that are Christian teachers, will uh, print that out and use it as a, a lesson uh, plan mm-hmm. as well. So, uh, Breakpoint.org, or just look up the Breakpoint podcast. John, thanks so much for your time, your insights. I appreciate your ministry and the ways God is using you in the kingdom to advance truth, justice, mercy, and all that is good. Thank you, brother. That brings us to the end of this edition of the College Faith Podcast. I hope this conversation at the intersection of Christian conviction and higher education helps you or someone you love flourish in both heart and mind during the university years. Be sure to check out today's show notes at collegefaith.net slash podcasts where you can find more information and links to the resources we discussed. If you found this podcast helpful, please help spread the word by liking my College Faith Facebook page at facebook.com slash collegefaith. And you can follow me on Twitter at Stan W. Wallace. Please do visit our sponsor, 
Global Scholars to learn how you can be a part of creating lasting change in higher education worldwide. And if you haven't done so already, I would greatly appreciate your review of the show at Apple Podcast or Stitcher. It helps a lot. And finally, I encourage you to pass this show on to your friends or others you think would enjoy hearing our conversation. So until next time, this is Stan Wallace encouraging you to love the Lord your God with both heart and mind during the university years and beyond.